Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody and welcome to another special programme here on the Radio Show Limited network of channels. I think pretty much all of you listening to this will realise what a hotbed of invention, innovation and engineering the United Kingdom and particularly the middle part of England is. You've often heard me refer to it as the carbon fibre triangle. Well, today's trip out has taken me uh, down to the southern tip of that really um, within not too much of a drive from where I am at the moment I could head over to Williams at Grove or to McLaren Technology Centre but today I've come to a factory unit that is so much more than that this is a company who, since the late 1950s, have been an integral part of motor racing. Today, we're going to give you the inside view of Hewland. The inside story on the teams, suppliers and circuits. Inside. Right, well, let's get in through the doors and find our host for today, who is David Warner. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, John. Uh, really well, thank you, and thank you for coming to join us today. Bit of a grey day outside, but I'm looking forward to being enlightened and finding out all about gearboxes, differentials, and all the clever things that you do here at Hewland. Be- before we get into the, the body of, of, the, of the company here, um, we've got to talk a little bit about history. Late 1950s, 1957, um, the man who put his name above the door, Mike Hewland, how did he start? What was the, what was the background to the, the formation in those days of, of, the, of the nascent company? So very much from, um, from a need uh, that, that nobody realised was kind of there, which was, was bespoke solutions for, for transmissions. You know, everything, everybody was trying to run uh, OEM um, uh, kits, you know, gearboxes that came from... The, the manufacturers and, and they started having problems. And, they, and this was purely for motorsport in those days? Purely for motorsport, yeah, yeah. So people, people doing, I don't know, rallycross or, or, or small clubman type racing and, um, uh, and uh, um, they'd, they'd do, fix, do fixes to them or improvements and it kind of grew and grew and grew from there. So, um, and he was a one-man band in those days. He was an engineer by trade and, and he was coming up with innovative solutions and, and what almost doing them on a bespoke basis uh, exactly that's what i believe um and and that sort of grew pretty rapidly into 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 some bespoke gearboxes in the in the early 60s and from then the company has gone through an, 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 an expansion particularly in those early years you were the only guys doing it out there and you know everything from formula one down over was hewlett yeah, exactly right. Um, uh, ne- inevitably, over time, you know, people people try and copy a, a good business model and do you know, more of the same, um, or, or go into a, a different niche, perhaps rallying, for example, rather than circuiting. Um, so as time goes by, you know, competitors come to the fore, and it, and it all gets a bit more competitive as it should naturally. I can only imagine the sort of differences if if Mike was still here. Yeah, we should say that Mike's son. William is is still the man at the head of this, which is a family business through and through. Yeah, absolutely right. So, hundred percent owned by uh, by by the chairman, um, William Hewland. Would Mike recognise the business if he was to be brought back and shown round this this place today? Would he see things that, as an engineer, even in those heady days of the late 50s and the early 60s when things were moving at such a pace would he see things that he would recognize or has it changed beyond compare no i think he'd recognize a lot but i think he'd also be very excited um (laughs) as an engineer always is with you know what's new and what's upcoming what new tools there are out there um to to 
to, to analyze and what new challenges there are. So I, I think it, I think it, I never knew um, knew him, but uh, I'm sure he'd be very encouraged by what he sees and what's familiar, but also what's new and different. And, and the Hewland name continues on into all different areas nowadays as well. How many people employed now from, from starting off with Mike as the Hewland? Yeah, 140 people here in the UK. Wow. And we'll also have to talk about uh, joint ventures in, in other places now. I notice on the wall there, he, Hero Hewland. Anyone who knows anything about um, small motorcycles in India will have seen that. They sponsor test cricket out there. Relatively uh, new for, for you guys, though? Yeah, joint venture was formed at the start of the year. Um, and it's very much about taking uh, all of the capabilities that Hewland have at the smaller scale, so prototype um, design concept design prototype work testing and enabling that to to be to be uh, taken to mass manufacture as well so sort of cradle to grave of a concept to mass manufacture and that's in india the other side going the other way heading off um left from the united kingdom to the states where you've got a facility out in north carolina now yeah, that's right. Mooresville in North Carolina, um, Hewland Incorporated, uh, very much focused on uh, the specifics of, of the US requirements. So looking to capitalise on the work that's already done there with NASCAR, but also the IMSA um, teams running out there, uh, providing parts and rebuilds and, and race support. So yeah, so support a support uh, a support function more than a design development and build or in concert with? Uh, so the the actual uh, track support has, has always been there and it was run all through this year, for example, in IMSA, every race. Uh, and it's, it's kind of grown from track support into more stocking, more stock holding, doing rebuilds there, etc. So it's, it's, it's grown from it organically. So what am I going to see today and what are we going to be able to explain to the Radio Show Limited listeners who have tuned in for this? Hopefully we'll be able to explain uh, and demystify a lot about gearboxes and and differentials, really. Um, You'll be able to see everything from uh, concept design through to all the components being manufactured, all the parts being heat treated, uh, assembly, uh, strip, um, even spinning the gearboxes over before they go out. So hopefully you'll you'll see sort of start to finish. Uh, As I've mentioned to you before really all we don't do here is actually pour castings mm. um pouring hot metal that's you know best done by a foundry um <laughs> generally um i think uh, that's sound advice yes uh, yeah definitely not not something for your uh, for your own back garden um and uh specialist coatings right. you know that, that that certain companies have for low friction for example we, we kind of take the gearbox and the differential in any car whether it's a road car or a racing car for granted until it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And one of the things nowadays that we have got used to, certainly, is reliability. And whether that's for road or for track, reliability is something that has uh, been a, a watchword for some time now. And in motor racing, we're even taking it for granted in motor racing now, endurance racing in particular. Yeah, uh, 100%. Um, it's a bit of an old adage, really. It's a, it's a, it's a term that's been often said, but... You know, gearboxes rarely win a race. We only ever hear <laughs> we only ever hear that they've caused someone to stop their racing. So um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 your reputation's on the uh, on the quality of the parts and um, you know the longevity of the parts and uh, that that's racing and OEM wise for sure. Right. So where are we going to go first? And I notice you've got some safety equipment for me. So let's put the specs on and the high vis. Oh, I'm very excited by this already. I do like a bit of high-vis, in fairness. I rock this, don't I? I really make this work. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right, where are we going first, then? Uh, so we're just uh, literally from reception going to go, go through the double doors uh, and turn left, and we're into the factory making things. Right, OK. This is proper engineering, and you're with a special programme on Radio Show Limited's network of channels as we go inside Hewland. Oh, look at this. Immediately, you'll have heard the difference in the sound quality and I'm in a huge machine room yeah let's let's wander through to the central uh, um, sort of galleyway uh, you'll be able to see the, the full sort of scope of what's here and what kits here um, very much very much sort of arranged in machine types so there's a lot of uh, milling machines here a lot of lathes 
a lot of gear cutting and gear grinding equipment, heat treatment as well. Um, and, and it's sort of laid out into segments. Um, there are little cells as well. So if you're making a lot of one particular part, maybe you would put a dedicated mill, a dedicated lathe, a dedicated gear cutting machine all in a little cell that would all um, sort of self-service. Um, but a lot of the product just goes through a workflow um, effectively in, in how much material is removed. So you've got a bit of raw bar and you'll take most of the material away with turning and then you'll take some more away with milling and then you're down to taking smaller and smaller amounts later on down to the really precision bearings and gear teeth etc so it, 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 it's almost like diminishing returns and how how many machines have you got in there's got to be a couple of dozen at least doing different things i mean i recognize some of them there are sort of multi-access uh, machines milling machines here but I presume so there must be some very specialist equipment as well yeah absolutely absolutely and um, you know that means that there's not many people uh, in the world that make those particular machines and, and they don't make many of them so they come with a premium of course I'm sure I'm sure they do what's this one over here this big grey one to, yeah. to our left so this is a, a big bit of investment for, the, uh, for Hewland it's uh, a Klingenberg G60 gear grinding machine uh, all the bevel gears that are ground are ground on this machine here um, so you can do a lot of special things with the bevel gear grinding you, you don't have to have you're not you're not set by uh, in the old days you'd have a set of cutting blades that would cut a gear tooth on a bevel so you're sort of set by that blade geometry what you can cut on each side of the tooth with this uh, you can dress a wheel to do whatever you want it to do and you can do different things on the drive or a coast flank for example and what does a bevel gear what is the point of a bevel gear? What, what uh, does it do inside the transmission? Okay, so the point of a bevel gear is so that you can take your drive from, from one direction and, and spin it through an angle, typically 90 degrees. So you might have, for example, in an in a, in a endurance-type racing car, an LMP1 or 2 car, for example, you'll have your engine in line with your uh, direction of travel, uh, but your wheels are 90 degrees to that. So at some point, you're going to have to go from in line to 90 degrees to that and that's what a bevel does um, it, and depending on how well you do the geometry you can get very very good efficiencies but typically changing between two angles you lose a lot through sliding of the gears right so why would you then want to do one thing on one side of the gear and, and one on the other what what advantage does that give you within the transmission okay so um Traditionally, when you were just going racing with a high-powered engine, an IC engine, you would be designing everything to be strong on the driving flank. So that's what's doing all the work. It needs to be as strong as possible. The coast is what it is. Um, but now, with all the hybrid systems, you've got, a, you've got a, 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 a big load on the coast flank, as it would have been called. But actually, that's regeneration power now where yes. you're using braking power to drive a, an MGUK to recharge your batteries and harvest that energy when you're going into the corner and then deploy it again when you're going out. So you've got a completely different load case there and you actually need to design the coast side of the uh, gear flank to be strong as well. You have to balance the two. And presumably getting that wrong um, can be catastrophic. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And getting it right, we often hear about the efficiencies that have to be made and and how every part of, actually not just in racing nowadays, we talk about that in road streetcars as well, but how everything has got to be efficient. So getting it right, efficiencies to be made there? Oh, 100%, yeah. Um, efficiency is a massive thing, just just because of um, just because it's less wasted energy for a start, you know, it gives you competitive uh, advantage there. Um, and that's the big one, really, efficiency, is just, just, just losing less and enabling more to go into lap time like it now where would you like us to go now well we can have a little closer look at this machine if oh you yeah like. please can I I didn't want to go over the yellow line you see right, lots of I've got a I've got high-vis on I'm invincible fantastic so this is the Klingle Klingelberg yeah, yeah G60, G60. So that's just how big the machine is basically right. G60 there's smaller versions bigger versions of course but uh, we're almost inside the machine here um, this is fantastic so there's all its own dressing of the wheels here with the diamond dressing wheel. It's got, when it's going, you know, you can't see anything because it's, it's 
cutting oil everywhere. Yeah. Um, big bath of big, lubrication big bath of underneath, underneath, yeah. And it's ever so clean. You know, it's got a whole filtration system that's running behind it that keeps that oil squeaky clean. Oh, I um, wish the listeners could smell that. this. That's, that's ground, that, that flank there. Yeah. How good that quality is already. Well, that, well that's almost mirror-like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, that, that, and that's from the first cut. That's first. That's cut. not been dressed, has it? No, that and that was a solid ring. It didn't have any gear teeth on it before now, so that's soft ground. Then it'll be heat treated, and it'll come back to have the finished profile ground on both. What sides. I noticed about that, though, David, is that that's a that is a very very, and you can probably hear I've got my head in the machine now. As I look at that bevel gear, which started life as a solid circle of metal, that that's a complex shape. Um, it's narrower at one end than the other they're not straight cut they are um, in a fan shaped and there's, as you said before there's different things going on on different sides of those teeth that's an e- extremely complex operation all done on one machine yeah all done on one machine and it's uh, all temperature compensated as well so you'll see some machines later on and the inspection department which is all temperature controlled environment no. because we're dealing with microns here temperature does matter even one or two degrees up or down you'll see that in the um, build area as well Um, but out here it's temperature compensated so it's got its own internal probing checking and and can do all the offset changes for temperature but it's also got the gear checking equipment right next to it right okay so this is quality control right here and that of course is the other major thing it's all very well turning these things out and having clever clever machines but it's got to be repeatable and it's got to be to spec yeah yeah absolutely and in the, in the old days you'd make a batch of crown wheels and pinions the two, the two gears that make up a bevel set um, and you would have different parts across that batch of 10 for example so you would then do a, an operation called gear matching which would be taking all of those gears looking at all of the you know how they all roll together and and equating or, or, or equivalencing the error across all those parts and dialing it out so it's equal across all the parts but what that meant is that if you picked up one gear and one pinion you couldn't then take another pinion if that pinion wore out and swap it back in or, right. or, or anything like that with these every part's the same yes so it, they don't have to be matched at any point which is one saved operation but that also means that when they're in stores they don't have to be a matched pair you can just take opinion and know that it's going to be fine to run with a new wheel what even if it's from a different batch love it brilliant stuff and and what sort of measurement levels are we going down you said microns though. yeah absolutely which so, is what in terms of an inch or a centimeter uh, well it's a thousandth of a millimeter so what, a thousand of a millimeter yeah 0.001 of a millimeter is, is a micron um particle of dust uh, from cigarette smoke is about two microns. And, and what is your so, uh, and what is your um, margin of error then? What, what do you want to see in terms of your divergence from specification? Uh, so typically, it, it, so a lot of it comes down to sta- various standards. So in, yeah. in, in gear, it might be a DIN standard or something like that. So it'd be a DIN standard for the gears. But typically, we're looking at plus or minus uh, a handful of microns so it's really small stuff so well less than a millimeter oh, oh yeah yeah absolutely that's right fractions of millimeters fractions. that's right okay now now we know why these machines cost so much money that's uh, extraordinary it's about a million pounds of investment sorry it's about a million pounds of investment this one machine uh-huh yeah that's a lot of crown wheel opinions you've got to turn out uh, it is it is um but the 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 costs the, the, the flexibility is a massive one to be yeah. able to, to design something run it test it go back and tweak the the geometry quite quite quickly is is a big flexible thing um before you'd have to buy a set of cutters and that would be two to three thousand pounds for a set of cutters and they'd have a certain life and you have to get them resharpened and you're always tied to that geometry okay, this this gives you so much flexibility and you can do it from soft you can do it from hard it's it's a mega piece of kit right we're going to move on um you're listening to a special program we're inside hewland we're literally inside that machine there for a moment it's the radio show limited network of channels and my guide here is david warner inside i do like a nice engineering operation you'll know that if you've listened to any of these programs in the past here on the radio show limited network of uh, channels i'm at hewland um, I'm 
Now, even I, as um, an engineering ignoramus, know that I'm looking at gearbox casings here, David. What what uh, what are these for? Where where would we see these being put to use? Uh, GT3 and GT4 applications. So uh, there's, let me just count them up here. 18 uh, magnesium casings. They've had a first operation, which is just to uh, flash a face for mounting, uh, and then they go onto this multi-pallet machine here. Uh, and I'm looking at a I'm looking at a big screen television here, which, um, well, I was going to say it doesn't have entertainment on, but. It, it, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. This is cycling through a number of different operations that there's, uh, what, eight, 11 potential bits of kit that this is watching. Yeah, so that's 11 turning machines. So that's only one department that it's showing there. But it, <laughs> it, it shows, you know, what machines, what they're doing at the moment. They might be waiting for something. They might be running. Uh, they might be on a breakdown or being set up. So there's, there's full sort oh. of machine monitoring. So it's gone now to the gear cell. So all sorts of different machines there. And then it can do a breakdown, as you, sh- as you can see on a pie chart here, of what's doing what. And I, it's always slightly uncomfortable to watch, but the reality is that production is always a smaller percentage than all of the setup or, or yes. waiting for something because it's small batch runs that are being done. So they're constantly breaking up, breaking down. Uh, you know, anything more than a batch of 30 would be a big batch. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And I noticed that... The operators' names are on here, and clearly operators looking after multiple machines here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If they can, um, and as I mentioned to you earlier, sometimes those things are in a in, in a little cell, so it might be a turning and a milling and a gear cutting machine, and they can flip between those machines uh, if the workload allows. And there's a lot of uh, swarf down here as well. Magnesium. Oh, Gotta be careful yeah. with that. Uh, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yes magnesium only in there from those gearboxes you know I love all this stuff uh, right I recognize these these are tools as well milling tools and various dies yeah um, loads of gauges of course lots of thread gauges plug gauges uh, we'll look in the back of one of these machines in a minute at the tool carousel and you'll see you know, it's hundreds of tools to machine one casing but that's because everything might be a bit specific if if we go back to the 1950s and 1960 in Mike Hewland, the, the big change that he would see is the um, use of automation and machinery and how sophisticated that has become actually in relatively short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, now, now everything's computer controlled and as I mentioned on the previous machine, it might be temperature compensated and you, you might have a link up with the inspection kit that's required as well and uh, and it goes on with time and, and again that's a, a big part of where the company's going and, and the point in time it's at is investment in the future and those efficiency gains to keep it competitive in the global environment it's extraordinary you said we could have a look at the tool carousel can we uh, a, yeah. see if uh, we can this machine might be best actually because right. it's right on the uh, walkway well, lovely let's have a, have a look these, these two machines are the bigger machines they do a lot of the casing uh, main case and side oh, cover type machining but uh, what are we up to here? 286 tools in this particular machine. <laughs> and, and, I mean, how much of the operation can be done without an operator? The, I mean, the machines, you set them away, they'll do various different things. They are very clever nowadays. Yeah, yeah, they are, they're very, very good. Um, but the absolute truth of it is that a lot of the guys here have, have been here a long time, actually. Hewland are very good at retaining their staff. Um, and they know the type of work they work on, they know the machines, and they've got a lot of background experience as well. So re- really, you know, these might be very high-tech machines, but the reality is it's a bit like having a car and a driver. Yeah. You know, you, you, you could have the best car on the grid, but if you haven't got the right talented guy driving it as well, you're not going to get it performing as it should. Yeah, and you guys uh, work what I would call normal engineering hours, in at 8 o'clock in the morning, finishing the afternoon, or do you run shift work? Uh, shift work um, currently there's I think an A, B and a C shift uh, on certain machines so we can get as, um, uh, the, a lot of those bottlenecks or pinch points as we call them ironed out as best we can because there's certain key bits of, a, of kit like, like the uh, very expensive bevel grinding machine where um, you know, that's a, we're limited to having one or two of those particular machines yeah. and, uh, and we've got to make the most of them right. super where to now? 
we'll take a wander further down the central gal- uh, galley just to have a look at more of the gear cutting kit, I think. Oh, yeah, I like gear cutting. This is good stuff. Uh, slightly different gear casing on our right-hand side there, going through. Now, these are... Uh, on the right here, we've got Matsura yeah, machines. I've, I've seen these before. Yeah, these are, these are milling machines again. These are slightly smaller, but actually this one on the end is a full five axis, so it, it can get to almost any angle that it needs to, and it's, it's spinning around on its uh, trunnion at the moment. So it's just, just spun up to its front face. This is um, an end casing of a gearbox for a GC3 application. Um, you can see another one here ready to go. It's been set up on a jig already. Yeah. It's had one face done, but it'll go in there and it'll do five sides of the cube of machining. So that one's finished there. It's right. done the top face. It'll do drillings on the side, etc. It's great. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, yeah, do, I don't want to have to... I don't, I don't want to get uh, somebody's GT3 gearbox late because I'm standing standing watching here. I'll get kicked in the pants by our, our motorsport friends. Now, we've come just off the central aisle here uh, into some smaller machines again. What, what, oh, my goodness me. What are we looking at there? It looks a bit like a medieval, uh, I don't know, like a, Yes, <laughs> a, like a mace or something like that with um, what sort of stegosaurus-like teeth uh, all the way around it. Now, what's, what's that then? What am I looking at there? Uh, uh, it's a gear-cutting tool. It's got a hob. Um, so this is a hopping machine and that's a hob that goes in there goes in a spindle um, this machine's set up so you can put multiple blanks on the machine and it just feeds them in one at a time um, but effectively that, that sort of spins round it's like a, like a toothed multi-toothed wheel along its length um, the gear spins round as well and, and it cuts the teeth on the gear right. as the two spin so there's a little bit of maths that goes on in all of that and you've got a you think, time yeah. or two um, but out of the end of it you know you get a you, you get a very repeatable part uh, and who makes those gears those those tools rather to because I appreciate you know garbage in garbage out you say that in computing but it's exactly the same here if the tool that's doing the cutting isn't right then what it's cutting's not right uh, absolutely and that, that's also true of all the fixturing and work holding of the parts you know good that's got to be really good as well um, and and yeah, there's a few companies in the world and a few specialist UK companies that will do special versions of these hobs uh, for us. Right, now I know what a hobs is then. Fantastic. A hobbing machine. That's a Gleason hobbing machine. Right, what are you looking at down there? Yeah, it's, it's just different types of gear cutting. So that, that's a hob. We've also got um, over there, it's, it's called a brooch. So that's for internal splines and gears. It's a big long rod with yep. similar teeth to that uh, that you pull through apart and, and the first ring that it goes through is a little bit of cutting and then it, a bit more and a bit more a bit more until you get to the very top where that's the full form we think of Hewland of course as the name on gearbox and differentials and transmissions but I presume anything that has gears or a spline or anything like that is is your stock in trade whether that's parts for uh, a steering rack a, a splined hub or anything like that yeah, exactly right you know that's the value add of the company um all day every day i'd say if the company wanted to buy a new machine go and buy a gear cutting machine that's the value out of the company it's a gear company uh, it's nice to have a mill or a lathe that's always extra capacity but you know that's that's going to value add to the company um so it could be yeah it could be um a disc bell onto a, a hub um so you know it's, it's right by the wheel or it could be in the engine um, or it could be steering rack components anything that's got a tooth on it or a very special tooth on it that's Hewland's bag I like it I like it so let's uh, have a wander further through the machine shop here I'm very impressed with um, just everything that's going on here and the the amount of diversity that we're looking at here uh, David is, is impressive but I suppose that comes down to the fact that um, there's so many different parts go together to make up even a fairly simple transmission piece like a, a diff or something like that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of lot of components in a gearbox. Um, quite often they're doing a lot of work as well. Um, you try and you always, as a designer, try and get something to do more than one job. Yeah. Um, so as much as we try to reduce the part count, it always seems to increase. <laughs> these are probably it's, it's funny just wandering through I mean these two machines here are right in the middle of the, the factory 
these are probably the busiest machines in here, but they're not CNC. They're no. dyed-in-the-wool, highly experienced guys on manual mills yeah. because there's always something that needs doing either quickly or a special rework or something out of the ordinary that doesn't have to go and get CNC program, that doesn't need a special right. setup on a very expensive machine. But these guys work ever so hard. Anybody who did metalwork at school will recognise the component parts of, of this machi machine. A milling machine, for those that don't know, is effectively sort of like a big drill that's, that's mounted very, very precisely. And then you offer up the parts to be machined, and whether that's getting a hole put into it or uh, having some shape put into it, you offer that up um, from a, a, a work effectively a bench underneath that or a, uh, an area and then you do you use the rotating drill bit or machine bit to actually do the process that you want and as you say by hand that's that's old school that man isn't it yeah yeah it is but you know as I, as I told you earlier you know I've, I've worked up at Mercedes-Benz high performance engines in Bricksworth or high performance powertrains as it is now they've still got manual machines there as really? well yeah of course and so it, versatile. And is that because of the specific needs of motorsport and the compressed time schedules that you ultimately have in motorsport? What you mean? We always used to say when I was working at Ray Malik's, you know, when we were trying to explain to a manufacturer why the crossover between um, series production and motorsport, particularly for engineers, was good. There's no excuses, you know that. If the green flag has dropped and you're not on the grid, you can't say, can we put it back a week? So is, is this in some ways mitigating motorsport or is it just because of the, the type of work that you do here? It's just, I think it's more to do just having the flexibility um, and the capacity to do something special very quickly. Um, as you saw, there's a whole scheduling system there and a big screen of what machine's doing what, but that, that goes even further back into what job's going to be next and what the end date is for that transmission and when it needs to hit build and etc 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 so having some extra capacity in there that gives you flexibility around the normal systems that are, that are delivering what they need to for motorsport but the motorsport plus stuff yeah. then it's good to have that capacity so lots of machinery here turning out individual parts um, milling them getting the gears to the exact specification I've got a Deo machine uh, running here as well what about assembly then where does that all where does that all happen because that can't go on in here uh, no it's uh, right at the end actually I'll show you that it's the new uh, build area um, we've probably got a little bit more kit to show you and then okay, I'll, I'll take you that. there that's a highlight for sure okay let's have a look then what we're going to see that another fantastic piece of uh, machinery going on there so what's going on there, Jim? Uh, we're actually machining the first of a new batch of parts on here. It's a gear change barrel, which is quite complex, but it's the first one here, so I can't show you one that's already come <laughs> off. But that, effectively, it's just a bar at the moment. So that it comes in as a as a bar that gets mounted into the machine, well, that, and then the machine does its magic. Actually, that's not quite true in this instance. So to get the most weight out of this particular part, it's several parts that are electron beam welded together. So it's a, it's a type on, of welding. Stop. Electron beam welding. Yeah. We, we're Book Rogers in the 25th century here, man. What's that about? Uh, so what happened to Tigmet welding and stuff like that? Uh, that still exists, but this, this is even um, this is even better. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really accurate. Gives us really clean weld. Um, you could take sort of several several parts that you might have taken all the internal material out of, weld them all together, and then do something uh, fancy on the outside. So it's light on the inside, light on the outside, and yeah, then we go racing. Right. Another batch down. All right, okay. Right, we'll have a look at that in a minute. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I'm blown away by this. Uh, we're at Hewland, by the way, if you are just joining us. Uh, right in the bottom edge, the bottom point of the carbon fibre triangle here in the middle of England. Not too far away, several Formula One teams pretty much throw a wheel nut from round here and you'll hit something that's got motorsport all all over it and where have we come to now david uh on the left is all the uh all the lathes so the the you know turning machines so you take a, a raw bit of bar and that's where you actually remove majority of the material um at the back there on those big roller doors is where all the all the 
raw material is kept, or the bar or castings are kept, gets cut into slivers or billets or whatever you need lengthwise, and then it comes to these machines first. And, and I mean, we should talk about that then. You know, um, materials technology is an essential part of motorsport. That's got more exotic down through the years. Now, regulations sometimes mean that you don't have a choice in, in what you can use, but I mean, where's that coming from? Is that UK? Is that global? And, and, and what sort of technology is going into the material that you guys are using now? A uh, bit of both on the supply side. So there's um, uh, specialist companies in the UK, but also in Germany um, and elsewhere like Japan that, that create their own types of steel, for example, uh, their own blends. Um, then there are Hewlands versions of those as well, uh, where they might have a particular sort of mix let's call it chemical composition um well you spec so you yeah. uh, have worked on specking up and, and designing the steel yeah yeah and and a lot of it also is on the cleanliness of those you know how, how pure that chemical mix is right. um often uh, i've seen it myself you, you look at a failed component and you go down to sort of getting it looked at under a electron microscope and you look you know where's this actually started to fail from and it's something that isn't right there. You know, some little asperity or grain boundary error or something that's not right, and that's the cleanliness of something. Right. And motorsports famous for this really is just chasing and chasing, cleaner and cleaner and better and better. So yeah, and more expensive. Always, yeah. yeah. The cleaner you want it, the more expensive it'll be. Right. Uh, on the right. On the right here. Yeah, we got some grinding grinding machines. So they'll take a hardened component, say a case hardened component. Um, that's had a lot of its material removed already and now they're removing a lot less but they're establishing very critical faces bearing journal diameters or, or, or certain items on the part that have to be very high precision or very very square or very round I, I wasn't really sure David what to expect when I walked in here today but I'm already getting a, a new found respect for what you guys do here because there's so much going on in-house it's extraordinary and the I mean I've seen the inside of far too many gearboxes in my time to be honest um, so I know what goes into it but my goodness what goes into putting it together is something else now we've as you probably could hear we've moved out of the main uh, machine shop now into what so this is a it's a, it's a metallurgical lab so uh, <laughs> Sounds, sounds posh and it is really um, everything uh, or nearly everything that's, um, that's heat treated is heat treated in house here and we'll wander through in a minute and see the, the furnaces and the heat treatment kit um, every batch of parts that goes through a, a heat treat run will have a test token put in it so this is very much about taking those test tokens and making sure that what was run did what it should have done um, but it can also be used for any failure analysis as well make sure that if a component's failed in the field we understand that it is to spec um, we can section it look at the how hard it is to various different depths um, whether there's any problems there so this is all the kit that's involved with that and, and typically how much how um at what frequency do you put uh, what you've just described as a test talk and a test piece uh, in to a run yeah, every every run everyone will have a test token in it and that will be tested as a, as a matter of course um, kit wise you know you have to section the component you have to polish it up before you then start putting it on various hardness checking machines but you can also look at things under the microscope to see you know when you've when you've done the hardness check what is it what does it look un, like yes. under under a microscope and see what the changes have been and whether they've done what you expected them to do yeah exactly right right yeah. okay Right, we're heading off to another part of the factory. Stay with us as our inside story at Hewland continues here on the Radio Show Limited network of channels. Inside. Moved into another section of Hewland now on this inside show from uh, Radio Show Limited's network of channels. Uh, David is still with me and I feel the heat immediately. There's a change of, of temperature in here. And that is a big furnace. Yeah, it is. It is. And it gets hot. About 1,000 degrees it can go up to. Uh, a little bit above, I believe. Um, so we have to take a lot of the materials up to a very high temperature. And what that. does that achieve? And why do you do that for the unionation unit like so, me? 
you, you do that so that you can change more than anything the, the surface uh, condition of the part so it'll go up to very high temperature at which point that, that material will be able to absorb um, molecules from the atmosphere so you put a very carbon rich atmosphere around the parts and they absorb the carbon so in a steel you'll have some carbon in most of them you'll have a little bit of carbon in there um, if you add more when you then cool it down and, and how quickly you cool it down will put some hardness into the surface and to some depth and that's great of course if you're running gears on each other all the time uh, that hardness is important but having some ductility underneath that hardness is good for it to last and be tough uh, not just hard and, and tip now this heat cycle this heat treatment before the milling before or after or sometimes both uh, both um, you go roll back a few years almost everything was done before heat treatment and you do as little afterwards as you can now it depends what you want to achieve um, breaking the case depth that, that, that hardness layer you've put in there is sometimes good sometimes bad it, it depends what you're trying to achieve but more often than not what you're able to do now is a lot more because the cutting tool technology is so much better so you can cut things harder easier now right. than you could before um, and sometimes you don't want any case depth there you don't want any hardness in a certain area um, but this, this kit and it's not just furnaces we've got ability to do what's known as tempering so you bring the part once it's been heat treated back up a little bit to say 150 160 degrees uh, and hold it there and it helps refine the microstructure of the, of the gears but there's also processes here so this is the room that gets very hot and very cold it's got cryogenics in here as well you really? can take yeah you've got liquid nitrogen here you can take components that have had really harsh high temperatures done to them drop them down to minus 180 degrees celsius something like that and the microstructure will refine even further um, and you'll get a better part more processes more expense you know it's a lot of the f1 parts have that sort of process put on it right you're not doing this by accident and you're not doing it as hit and miss so how do you know what to do to which bit whether that's a machining uh, operation whether it's a heat or cold treatment operation um, finger in the air experience what how do you know what each bit needs um of course a huge amount is experience um and some of it's very specific to racing and and transmissions and some of it's almost general engineering you know you can read in any general engineering book about heat treatment what you probably won't hear about is the minutiae of, of what exactly to do when and what that gives you at the end result and what to avoid and what to maybe to do on top of that etc but the, the core engineering principles aren't new but some of the techniques might be quite specialist. It strikes me that you guys are engineering in the big sense of the word literally with all those machines that are doing cutting milling grinding etc but you're also engineering at a molecule level because you're affecting the structure of metals of your material um, by the way that you use some of these other other features yeah uh, yeah I completely agree yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's the macro and the micro you know it, they, they really um, they follow one another uh, it, it, there's there's definitely times when you've made something that you think is a tiny change and it turns into something catastrophic sometimes <laughs> you make a big change and actually it makes very little difference to the micro scale yeah. but you've always got to be sort of careful always and law of diminishing returns I suppose you've got to be careful what you do and what how many processes right where to next then David I'm looking longingly at people putting things together here yeah let's go there because that's, right. that's a step change from um, a busy noisy engineering hands-on type work with these machines into a very very clean and new area um, right. which is the build area right and we're just passing a load of uh, windows to our left and I can see a couple of cases on workstations there that's uh, looks very oh hello ah and all of a sudden we're in a little oasis of quiet and concentration with uh, a couple of gearboxes being worked on a couple of different types actually and uh, one two three four five six seven seven eight workstations here 
Yeah, yeah. So eight, eight guys at any one time can build a gearbox here. Um, at the moment, there are there's a LMP2 gearbox over there, and then one, two, three, four GT4 gearboxes that are going together, and a DTM transmission that's going together. That's the big one on the end. Actually, yeah. they're not uh, too different in in size to the the P2. I mean, you guys work across a huge range. Of motors, I like it in here. I really do like it in here. A huge Everybody range of. Uh, on this. Oh right, okay. Well, explain why and uh, what we what we're talking about. Well, it's just the covering that's uh, that's on, on the, all the workbenches and uh, and sort of cabinet tops. But it's um, <laughs> it's a most people will, will know working at various places that um, every, everywhere somewhere like this is usually covered in rubber matting. Yeah, this stuff's clear. Yeah, um, which is great because you can. Make sure that the parts are all protected. You can see any spillages or any any dirt yes. a lot better, and you can also put things under it, like for example, a drawing. Uh-huh. Not that these guys need drawings anymore because they've got screens and it's all you know uh, everything sort of captured in spreadsheets and and the like. Um, and they've got a lot of sort of IT capacity now. But it's still nice to be able to if you've got a document some things down maybe write some figures down you can pop that underneath yeah and yeah. still view it but keep it clean as well yeah, keep it out of the way and make sure there's no contamination let's have a look at this lmp2 gearbox sitting here um back for a rebuild this one. okay back for a rebuild so that's why it doesn't look quite as pristine as as it yeah. might when it leaves typically um, speaking in terms of life for a, a, an lmp2 gearbox uh, life so the, the, between rebuilds uh, major rebuilds at 16,000 but we also do a minor one at 8,000 kilometres yeah kilometres yeah, yeah that's that. I mean again that's something isn't it that that again if we go back to the founder Mike Hewland he'd be scratching his head at that thinking that you get a racing gearbox to do 16,000 kilometres with the kind of the kind of uh, uh, duty heavy duty that these things do nowadays yeah and, and here's a word you probably wouldn't expect me to say but warranty as well Really? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. So this, this gearbox will have warranty on it. Uh, the GT3 ones do as well. Um, it's a pro rata basis, you know, you don't just get a brand new gearbox. You might have done 11,000 of the 12,000 kilometers life and mm. then, it, then it has a problem and you'd only be expected to pay a small portion. Yes, uh, yes. Or a pro rata portion yes. um, for that repair or, or, or that replacement. And well, LMP2 here, you mentioned a couple of the other things that you're doing, but give us a, a, a little snapshot of, of which forms of motorsport that Hewland are involved in. Okay, so a whole series of Formula 2, that's a spec series, whole series of GP3, which is now going to be F3, F3 going forwards. Does that, that changes next year with a new car, that extra work for you guys? Um, not really. It's, it's still got the same designation. It's the MLI gearbox. Um, that's, that's been very well received. It's run very well. Um, it's, it's continuing over. A lot of that car is actually continuing over. It's, it's had a, obviously, rightfully, a, a big fanfare when it's been released um, with the Halo and mm. different Aero, etc. But, um, of course, a lot of the mechanicals, as a, as a spec formula, they're, they're looking to yeah. rationalise cost wherever possible. And, um, you know, if you've got something that's working really well for you, you roll it over if you can or with minor modifications. Of course, back in the early days of the company, um, Hewlett made its name in Formula One. Is Formula One still open to you, or do the, the teams, particularly the big teams, do they do a lot of their own work? Uh, it's it's without exception that all of the Formula One teams, um, or if they're affiliated with a, with a large OEM, uh, will have their own gearbox designers. So they'll design their own kit, and uh, Hewland still make Formula One components, um, but they don't do whole gearboxes and supply whole gearboxes you know they, they make to print very much that's mm. the that's the sort of terminology of what's done there and before we leave formula uh, cars um, you guys were involved right from the very beginning with formula e which is uh, about to uh, start its fifth season of competition mm-hmm. and changes there as well since the early days yeah, absolutely. So in, in, in the early days, it was, again, another series that Hewland supplied the whole gearbox for, for everyone. It was a spec gearbox. Now, going into season five, it's it's very open. They've got very few gearboxes they can actually have for a season. Um, I think it's two race boxes and two spares for the whole season. Um, but it's very open regulations-wise, so you know, people can chase after whatever geometry they want, whatever... 
because um, the motor's open as well to them. They can have all sorts of different speed ranges or gear change requirements. But as time's gone on and the motor technology's gone on and it's gone to where it is now, very few people are changing between any gears. It's either a single speed, um, several reductions within that single speed, but there's no gear change mechanism anymore. And originally then, when you started with Formula E, that was a, a fairly standard five, six-speed motorsport gearbox then? Yeah, yeah, it was um, inline um, F3 type uh, duty because it was fairly light duty, not very, mm. not very high-powered cars as they were originally. Higher now, going into this season. Um, lots of talk though from from electric motors, from zero revs. Uh, exactly, lots of talk from from zero revs, and um, certainly this season just gone. You know, there was no warm-up laps. They mm. started from cold. Oh, you know, so the the lubricants got to switch on from from zero temperature pretty much, and all the parts have got to be ready to go. And uh, yeah, it's got to. It's got to perform from the off um, at does, max do, torque. Does electric racing and subsequently electric streetcars as well, does that give you any specific headaches or challenges, shall we say? Because I know you guys like taking things on to to improve. Uh, certainly lots of, lots of challenges. Um, big one, of course, is efficiency. Uh, another big one is noise. Now you haven't got a, an icy engine anymore creating a, a, a big racket, which I love personally. But... Um, you know, as, as, as cars race and um, uh, road car get quieter, uh, everything else becomes noisier almost, mm. you know. So creaks and knocks from suspension become louder. Trim noise becomes louder. It, not louder, but it was always there. You just didn't hear it. Yeah. But now it's being masked. Everything's having to refine further, and transmission uh, 100% is having to refine further and becoming quieter and quieter. Is the, you know, is the, can you ever see a time when... Um, you will need a gearbox in an electric car. You could do direct drive motors in in wheels and uh, and things like that. Or is or is that not refined enough for for the street car driving experience that people will demand? Um, difficult to to cast the future. I think motor technology is moving so quickly, and not just motor technology, but also all the controllers behind it, all the software behind it. What can be done in a motor? Um, it is really very trick now you can in you can you can inject a reverse current or i think they call it a d current which derates the the motor and you can do very clever things with that and you can sort of harvest energy in different ways and you know i, I think as time goes on they'll be to be able to do more and more and you've seen it from formula e you know from season one to five it's gone from multi-speed five or six speed down to either no gear change so single speed or uh, two speed really yeah 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 so yeah, the, well, the, the logical progression is to go better and better yeah um other forms of motorsport we can know you from the endurance world of course or wec imsa uh dpis i know use uh, your equipment in the 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 drive line a bit of stuff for WRC as well, some off-roading? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, really anything that's got a, a gear form or a spline form on it, um, Hewland have and do get involved and, and, and are currently involved with. So, yeah, it could be steering racks for um, off-road application. Mm. It could be um, some weird and wonderful concept for a flying car or i don't know what you know <laughs> it, it could be anything um and hewland would be interested because it's it's taking the knowledge and the and the uh, technical um analysis capabilities and the manufacturing capa- capabilities and applying them to whatever problem it is we've seen literally the component parts being put together in fact we've seen the raw materials coming in being made into component parts here's where they're built into what is recognisably a gearbox for most people. But we've got to kind of roll the story back before that because there's got to be a design phase as well, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, there's, a, there's an office upstairs with uh, a bunch of designers, some, some guys uh, that do some very specific work, perhaps just on the sort of science of the teeth and the, and the gearing and the maths behind that. You know, uh, various, various gear designers um, people that do FEA on casings where you can put all the suspension loads in there finite element analysis yeah finite element analysis sorry for the acronym um, no no it's alright uh, CFD there's another one there colour for directors uh, no <laughs> computational fluid dynamics um, no hang on though but why why would you be using CFD it's you're not aero biased here are you 
No, uh, no, that's CFD for inside the gearbox. Uh, very specific type of CFD um, for transmissions, and and Hewlin believe is a is a bit of a USP really. But the ability to see where oil's going, um, how effective your scavenge uh, position is and your filter position is through different corners, through different braking uh, scenarios at different revs. Uh, and you have to model everything within that, um, all the gear teeth, all the elements within a bearing, uh, everything within the sort of the volume, the internal volume of the gearbox and, uh, and run that through an analysis. And that tool's uh, very, very good for Hewland because it enables to do it in a lot less time than a normal CFD tool would have done. Um, talking That's some powerful computing there, I would think, because there's a lot going on in a gearbox. This is not just yeah. airflow across a car or a wing section or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and oil's slightly different to air. Air, air is actually sticky, weirdly enough, um, but transmission oil is even stickier. Um, so it, it, it's got its own sort of dynamic properties that make it computationally heavy as well. Uh, the, the, the big thing is you know, how, how big a space is inside the gearbox and how much oil are you tracking around in that, in that volume as to how long the run might take. But typically, you're looking at... We, we can do it as part of the design phase, um, potentially, because it's sort of two to three weeks for a run iteration rather than the more traditional type, which might be seven or eight weeks wow. of preparing all the data and running the simulation and, and the like. And, and that clearly saves time. Does it also translate into the real world? Because knowing motorsport as I do and the automotive world as I do, it's all very well seeing it on a computer screen. Um, but I've often seen things go into racing cars and the first time you shake it down, it doesn't work as you were expecting. So how... I mean, it's all inside the gearbox. How you can't put cameras in there. So, how do, how do you see if that is actually being proven in the real world? Um, so, when we actually evaluated that particular bit of software, um, we wanted to check that it did what we wanted it to do. Um, and thankfully, you know, we're problem solvers. So, if you don't have the tool to do it, you do it some other method. So, in the past, there's been all sorts of gearboxes that have had niggles. Let's call them could be a big niggle um and might have created a, a clear side cover for it or a clear oh. portion of the casing with rapid rapid prototyping basically you can um you, you, you can you can create that we'll go out. and um and effectively you can run on a spin rig um and see what the oil is doing visually but right. that's only you can't do that for the whole gearbox you could only maybe do it for a side plate for example yeah uh, and, and this through here is the spin rig that we can angle oh. things at different angles so you can you can run the gearbox on here uh, with a clear casing you can tip it forwards or side to side to simulate maybe half a g or a g of braking or acceleration or cornering and you can see it visually but that's not the whole story because that's only what we can do on here we can't go beyond that right and we can't transition from one to another smoothly right. like you can in this software you can very much do just braking or just cornering you can't yes. do a combination yes um which most people actually do, um, and of course we can we can data log as well. You can you can put a um, pressure sensor on the pickup point and look at the data trace and go well, it's dropping out, um, uh, and make a change and see how it affects it. Uh, and in the real world, what benefit does that give you? Being able to model so accurately what the lubricant is doing inside the box or the diff. Yeah. So traditionally, uh, you know, if you cast your your mind back quite quite a way, you know, people would take oil out bit by bit by bit till they get to the right level uh, and, that, <laughs> and that right level might be that they don't have any more pressure dropouts for example right but they might still be running around with a whole liter more oil than they need to in that whole lubrication and cooling circuit and that's weight um but also you might you might not be effectively cooling with the oil all of the important bits, all the important bearings, all the important meshes, right. um, as you're as as you're running around, and even you can't even quite see that when you've got clear casings as to how effective that lubrication is, because the gear's a bit of a blur. It's going around at three thousand RPM, mm-hmm. but with that software, um, you can slow it right down and see Very what's curious. really going on. So you might have a dedicated spray for a particular gear, but in reality, that tip of the gear might be batting it away and atomizing it almost instantly, and you need to do something a bit more 
clever or a bit more you know slightly different geometry shape on the spray so and, it's and you can do that in virtual reality without having to take a gearbox apart without having to fast prototype or build something and move that spray or move the angle of the spray um power loss as well you'll be looking at that at that point as well yeah exactly and you, you can you can sort of analyze how much torque loss there is on a on a shaft if you shroud a gear in a particular way you can direct oil off in a particular way to somewhere you want or somewhere you don't want it to go um you know, keep it away from there so it, it, it's a very powerful tool to do not just sort of big whole gearbox where's the oil going when i'm going around a corner but also really small scale just this one jet on that love particular it. part love it and what it sounds like to me is what we've learned already today here at Hewland is that we're doing proper, old-fashioned, grinding, cutting, stuff that you can smell and you can hear and you can see. Uh, you're doing materials um, engineering as well. And now you're looking at what the oil, the lubrication does inside the gearbox casing. So this really is um, a one-stop shop for for anyone to be able to I mean and, and, and how do people do that? Do people come to you and say, right, okay, here's a set of parameters. This is what I want. I want a six speed, seven speed gearbox. It has to fit into this sort of size of space. It has to take this much power, this much torque, and we're gonna drive up a hill with it or we're gonna put it on a racetrack. Or we're gonna build thirty thousand of them a year because it's a streetcar. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um it's interesting because what you just described there in the first instance was somebody coming to us where they know what they want and if only it was that way every time <laughs> <laughs> so the educated consumer is the best consumer always yeah because you've got much higher chance of giving them what they want um but the reality is it's, it's a sliding scale really from people that know exactly what they want and they even have a drawing and they want you to make it yeah and they want you to make the prototypes and also 100 million of them yeah <laughs> well maybe not 100 million but you know um hundred thousand uh one million units you know something that might be a component on a very high uh um number of either a number of parts within the the assembly or or a very high volume of say mopeds or something i don't know Um, exactly for hero hewland exactly you know that's that's motorcycle that's tiny little things turned at fast speeds all got a mesh uh and that's so that's high volume but but the other end of the scale is that somebody might come to us and say look i've got I want to do 10 of these vehicles and I'm not even sure who my client might be and it might be this engine or it might be that engine or it whatever (laughs) and and the reality is that that Hewland being the size it is and the sort of company it is they they very much they they always entertain every inquiry they don't just poo-poo anything because Mm -hmm. you do never especially in the EV world at the moment you never know who's going to be the next person that comes along and their car concept that might be poo-pooed everywhere else might become the next Model T Ford and it's a runaway success and it does everything that the market wants it to do and suddenly a name that was never known before is yeah you know the next Ford I don't yeah. know but it, it's an arms race the, absolute arms race at the and and those people what walking off the streets you go and see them they, they get in touch with, I mean what I get from Hewland is a company that is big enough to do a lot of big projects mm. but still with that family feel to it is small enough to be able to talk to people on a personal basis absolutely yeah absolutely and they, they do a, a few select trade shows every year um, do Autosport for example mm. uh, just come back from PMW in uh, Cologne I believe it was this year mm. Um, so they'll have people approach them there, um, but a lot of lot of traffic, of course, comes through the website. People just inquiring there. There's got a lot of contacts through just being around for so long. And the uh, reputation, and the reputation, exactly. So you know, people people getting touch naturally um, every time there's an inquiry or every time the, uh, a particular series comes back for retender, etc. You know, Hewland inevitably um, get involved in that. Before we call this to a close, because we've taken up plenty of your time already, and thank you very much for that, put you on the spot a bit. Where, where's the net? You've you've been involved in transmissions for a very long time, and involved in the design and the uh, implementation of various different things uh, in that speciality. Where's where's the next big break going to come from? Will it be materials? Will it be technology in terms of how transmissions and motor, whether that be IC or EV, interact? Will it be manufacturing? Where? Where is there a big gain to be made? Where will be that the next Eureka moment, do you think? Um, so I think we're already there a little bit. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, no, no, you don't have to give trade secrets here, of it's course. Not, no, it's not a trade secret. It was, it was a little while ago it was actually announced, but um, Hewland tied up with Integral Powertrain and McLaren to, uh, to do a hybrid. Well, it's not hybrid. It's, a, it's an e-axle, but it's an integrated e-axle. So it's, it's very much taking... What's been done a lot up to now is people have needed a gearbox, needed a battery, needed a motor, needed some power electronics to go and try and take their IC car to be an EV car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're sort of trying to solve a lot of problems all at once. And it's hard to do. And there's lots of companies that I've already spoken to that have been like, we'd really like to do this, but at the moment, we don't, one, we don't really know what we're doing. And two, there's so much option within each of those four things for us to yes. get something wrong. So electric motor from um, Integral Powertrain, uh, power electronics from uh, McLaren, and uh, all the gears and gear casing and all the integration of those items um, by Hewland. And the concept's all done, all the, everything's real. It's real motor from IPT, it's real power electronics from, from McLaren, it's real gear widths and tooth counts and sizes and park lock and brake and everything else from, from Hewland. Um, that design has been done and, and and sort of put forward as a unit called the CTU 400 unit. Um, there's a video that McLaren did, quite a fancy video, but it really shows how you can take lots of independent components where before there were lots of cables between all the components mm. and lots of different things, bring them all together and really get away from having to bolt on a motor. It's part of the gearbox. It's encapsulated into the gearbox. You, you go away from having to have three-phase cables going to the motor because you've got your power electronics as part of the gear casing. So you go three-phase straight from the um the electric motors and and and, and to the power electronics and you don't have three-phase cables going out of two motors you've got one dc link straight into the unit so integration and sort of solving a lot of these these problems and and giving turnkey solution maybe working with other clients but and other partners it's definitely the future i think that's where it's going that's integration of mechanical and the engineering bits as well as the electronic bits so that's the big step forward and you're not having problems with things not being able to talk to each other or um, not meshing to use a term that you guys will understand in both the literal and uh, the uh, slightly less literal senses that's brilliant david thank you very much indeed you're very welcome very welcome thank you for coming it's been it's been brilliant, and, and here's to the next seventy years of of Hewitt. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be uh, at least another seventy. Program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.